Welcome to The Future Strategist with James Miller. Today my guest is Zoltan Ishvan, and Zoltan is actually running for the President of the United States, and he's running as a transhumanist. Uh, welcome, Zoltan. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, you've had a, I think you, you had significant success running. I mean, you've gotten a lot of positive press, and none of the press thinks you have a chance of becoming President of the United States, but they've taken your ideas seriously. I mean, how yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it's been great because when I started, my campaign is officially going to hit its uh, two-year, uh, I guess, anniversary here in just a few days. And I'm really excited because when I started, I had no idea if a science and technology political platform would take off. And it really has because I think a lot of people um, around the world are realizing that science and technology is changing so quickly that politicians can no longer just sweep it underneath the rug and say, yeah, yeah, you know, science and technology, we love it, but it's a tiny part of our policy. I think more and more people are realizing it has to be a central part of the policy because very few things are so important as, um, as you know, you, like, for example, artificial intelligence and nuclear weapons or gene editing technology. So the press, the media has been very interested because I'm essentially the only candidate out there speaking on these topics. Yeah, you are. And they're also, I mean, when I talk about transhumanist issues to ordinary people, they look at me like I'm somewhat crazy. But you, they're, they're treating you as like a responsible adult who's talking about serious issues. I mean, I think you're, you're doing a tremendous service for the transhumanist community. You're, you're giving us some sort of stature and you're making us appear as we are, as we should appear, very serious. Well, thank you. You know, I, I'm, I feel like it, it wasn't always that day that way. In the beginning, it was, you know, just in a, in, it was really convincing the transhumanist community that politics was okay to pursue, um, you know, in the name of science and technology. But I think quickly after it really grew, and then of course, I think one thing that really made it grow, and some people hated, some people loved it, was I I took this kind of crazy, wacky bus tour. Uh, you know, for your listeners who don't know, I had a, a bus called the Immortality Bus, and it was essentially a 40-foot coffin. One of the biggest, you know, things of my campaign is trying to promote indefinite life extension through science and technology. And while the bus was a really wacky idea, you know, a 40-foot coffin rolling all the way across America, it it generated a huge amount of attention in media. And, uh, you know, once you actually talk to people about these ideas, you know, for example, a war victim comes back, uh, you know, from a war zone and he has a, a no, he or she doesn't have a limb and you can put on a bionic limb. That's classic transhumanism. Then people really start to say, hey, there's something to this. And that's, um, you know, that has just been a snowball effect. And here we are at the end of the campaign. And I'm, you know, I'm easily sixth or seventh in the presidential elections. I have no chance of winning. But we've won. The community, I think, has won already because transhumanism has become a you know a pretty a pretty uh, you know commonly used word now and i think a lot of people are saying wow by 2020 many candidates will have to consider at least transhumanism as as something that has to be talked about in their platforms because that age has sort of appeared so yeah as you said you, you've made indefinite life extension the central part of your campaign so you're basically running against death yeah what? yeah i'd say that you know and now that sounds a bit wacky of course when i it depends on which media i'm talking to but if i'm talking to a science and technology community or a public or, or a journalist i will feel pretty free to talk about you know conquering um death uh with science and technology if i am on the road let's say on the bus tour and i'm in the middle of the deep south um i I'd probably stay away from talking too much about 
conquering uh, death because that, you know, then becomes such a weird sort of idea. And, of course, on the East and the West Coast, there are many billionaires already putting their money towards life extension science and some of these things. So it really is, you know, America is so divided. That's one thing I've realized is that Texas is totally different than New York. New York is totally different than Ohio. And um, as you go across campaigning and, you know, on this platform, uh, sometimes I really just talk a lot about, you know, curing the blind with, um, you know, bionic eyes, which seems to work really well for a certain type of community. And other times you're on the, you know, here in California, in Silicon Valley, you can talk all day long about curing, about conquering death, and a lot of people love it. So, yeah, I think the main platform, though, has been running on an immortality ticket, or at least this idea of indefinite lifespans, and, and that seems to have uh, caught the attention of a lot of people. So how... If you were president or if you could have influence over the presidency, what would you do to make death voluntary or to you know, significantly extend human life? Well, sure. You know, our, our central policy uh, at the Transhumanist Party and also of my presidential campaign is we want to take the money from the military. We want to reduce the military by approximately 50 percent or something of that nature, however much Congress would let me do it, and um, and take – the majority of that money and put it into medicine, into technology, into radical science and really fight wars, not against people, as the military does essentially, but fight wars against cancer, fight wars against heart disease, fight wars against Alzheimer's. We can change the American uh, military industrial complex into a science industrial complex. And if we could do that, I think people could make just as much money. America could be just as economically sound. But the, the only difference would be that now we'd have, you know, much better medicine, much better science, much better technology. And, of course, personally, I would put a lot of money directly into the longevity or anti-aging movement. I've said to people that if I was to be the president, the very first thing I'd do is try to pass a bill that would say we would be putting $1 trillion into the life extension field over a period of 10 years. I believe with $1 trillion in 10 years, we would come very, very close to probably uh, conquering most forms, uh, most reasons that people die. Um, we've never had that kind of money put into life extension. If you actually even look at what the NIH is actually putting into it, it's peanuts, really. It's just in the matter of billions, mostly to fight Alzheimer's, but virtually nothing is going into anti-aging medicine right now. So by putting a trillion, we would be, you know, not just doubling the amount of money going into life extension science, but, you know, we would be increasing it by a few thousand percent. Okay, let me challenge you a bit on, on that policy. First, I mean, taking a lot of money from the U.S. military would militarily weaken us, and we do have enemies. Wouldn't that cause Russia and China to expand, and wouldn't it cause ISIS to become more bold and make the world a lot more dangerous place? Well, you know, I, I got to be honest, I, I don't actually think that ISIS is making the world a very dangerous place right now. I understand there have been terrible terrorist attacks, but um, it, when you actually look at uh, the amount of people that die from terrorist attacks, I mean, you have more people dying from, uh, you know, uh, many other things, automobile accidents, for example, are thousands and thousands of times more than terrorist attacks. So when you actually look at those kind of things, why don't we fix, fix automobile accidents and stuff like that? You know, so... You know, I, I think ISIS, outside of that, the real question is, by putting more money into life extension science, do we weaken ourselves to something like China and Russia? But I think, you know, part of my, the, my presidential campaign is not just putting money into life extension science. It's broadly trying to unite the world into a more science-minded planet, not one that is so 
set on its cultural heritage, its ethnicities, and especially not its its religions. So I would hope by reducing the military, I would also get other countries to do the same and say, you know what, we don't always have to be at odds with one another. We can do a lot better by combining, you know, um, a lot more of our resources. And of course, even though this kind of runs quite counter to a, a presidential campaign, I have said I would be very surprised if in 20 or 30 or in 40 years um, there are as many nations are, as there are now. I, I cannot see globalization going away. I think it's going to make sense for various countries to merge. And I would uh, even at some point um, advocate for a, a world government that is completely democratic, that where we elect some kind of leader. I was very disappointed that the EU, that Brexit happened. I, I thought the EU is a pretty good um, example of what can happen when countries get beyond a lot of their differences and try to work together. So I think that's the way the world is going. Um, less different currencies, less languages, and more to this kind of, uh, you know, one just big giant mosh pit where everyone sort of does their thing and they can keep all their, their cultural heritage and religions and whatnot, but we are, we're underneath a, kind of a, a central legal system and a central um, world government. And I think uh, that would be something good for science and good for us in general. So with that saying, you know, I definitely do lean towards those ideas. And um, that's how I think I could be able to reduce military by being better friends with China and Russia and other enemies that uh, we have. Okay. Um, the other part of your plan is having the government giving a lot of money to scientists. Wouldn't there be a danger of this crowding out good science that a lot of scientists would devote their time to getting this money and you know, they would optimize for whatever procedure you're using for giving out the money rather than optimizing for doing research. Yes, no, and of course that would happen for sure. You know, but I would say that it's better to do that than to not do it at all. There's certainly going to be the snake oil salesman people out there. There's certainly going to be, you know, the, the pseudo-scientific, uh, uh, and, and, you know, uh, universities that put stuff together that never could have had a chance of be actually being helpful in a scientific way. You know, that's, that's part of, uh, I think, of just doing business. But the most important thing is that right now you have a huge amount of researchers. Uh, you know, Aubrey de Grey is one of our advisors. And Aubrey de Grey's central problem uh, with SENS and some of the uh, other life extension companies out there are they just don't have enough resources. And therefore, they can only hire such a limited amount of scientists to do the work. If they had 10 times that uh, amount of resources, they would be able to potentially do 10 times as much research. And even if they didn't do 10 times, five times as much research would be better bang for the buck, in my opinion. So really, while there's going to be all sorts of issues and certainly some pseudoscience going on, I think in general, the more resources that go into the anti-aging movement, the further along it's going to get. Uh, would you be open to using prizes instead of giving direct money to researchers saying, you know, here's something, whoever can do this gets a billion dollars and we'll set up this independent panel of judges and if you think you've done it, you submit your application to it, and the winner gets the billion dollars. Well, so, you know, that's very interesting. In my novel, The Transhumanist Wager, that's exactly what they do. Every year they hand out a billion dollars um, for a company. They, they name a disease. Like, you know, next year you would say malaria is the disease. And you hand out um, a billion dollars at the end for whoever has come closest or has eradicated that kind of disease. Now, of course, in my novel, it's a little bit unrealistic, because you can't usually conquer a disease in one year, but um, you can use prizes very effectively in that way. And I think that would be one method to do it. 
At the same time, though, one of the reasons that I really want to take so much money from the military and put it towards um, science is also to tell the culture um, in America and around the world this is the way the world's going to be. Because I think right now, when you look at American culture, it's A, you know, it's 75% Christian. So most of them believe in an afterlife. They just simply don't have much of a reason to want to live indefinitely, to want to put government resources to anti-aging medicine when they sort of have this eternal paradise in their mind after they die. So by having a government do this, reducing military and, and putting an emphasis on life extension, I think we're trying also to change the culture. I, you know, the th at the Transhumanist Party in my campaign, we have three main goals. The first is, as we've been discussing, trying to conquer death with science and technology. The, the one of the second one, or actually the third one, is is fighting off existential risk. I'm almost just as worried about existential risk as I am worried about government not putting money into life extension science. You know, we have 25,000 nuclear weapons on the planet. And uh, we have asteroids that could potentially hit. We have uh, viruses like Ebola. So worrying about artificial intelligence dangers, worrying about existential risk is, is also um, significant. But the, the third thing that's very important as a, as a presidential candidate, what I'm trying to do is spread a culture of, of science and technology that is much more based on secularism or this idea that we don't bring religion into this picture, and therefore, when you take a secular point of view, you say, well, yeah, we, of course we want to use science to live longer because nobody wants to end up six feet underground and be eaten by worms, and nobody wants to lose their parents or lose their children. So for me, a huge part of my campaign has been spreading a pro-science culture, and I think that's something that's very important as well as a potential president. What I would do is to try to create culture, and that could even involve, you know, as you said, prizes. You know, one of the things I'd want to do is make scientists celebrities and, you know, create something where everyone in America says, wow, it's really great to be a medical researcher, to be the person who ends up conquering aging or, you know, eradicating uh, HIV or some of the, you know, whatever disease it is, is, is to be a true hero. And a hero is sort of like we see basketball players or Olympians. So that's the kind of culture that I aim to create with, with my presidential campaign. You know, it's interesting. I know that in South Korea, often the smartest student is automatically the most popular student, and it would be fantastic if we could somehow cause that to happen in the United States. But we're very, very far from any any kind of culture like that, where academic excellence is considered a, a you know a good thing by most kids. Yeah, no, and and of course that is what a dream for me because I've always felt that way. I always felt like you know the scientists, the philosophers, the academics were the ones, and you know I, I kind of. I have a philosophy background, and it, it used to be the, the you know the, the king philosophers or the philosophy kings. You know, the, the thinkers were the ones who were most uh, respected. And now it seems like we live in a culture because of either you know Hollywood or whatever, where a lot of the best uh, and most respected people are not those that are really, I think, changing the world that dramatically. Um, no offense to football players, but uh, I find it a little bit funny that the Super Bowl is one of the most watched events of the year. Instead of watching like who gets the Nobel Peace, you know, Nobel prizes for medicine or chemistry or or whatever it is, I think that's much more fascinating because I know that those discoveries of those people who won those awards are the ones who really changed lives. You know, the people who 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 brought us, in, you know, in vitro for you know these different types of technologies, uh, you know, that have literally changed the world. So I, I think. Um, you know, for example, the, the recent uh, scientist who created CRISPR technology, this gene editing technology, I mean, th this is so revolutionary. You could have a thousand Super Bowls and not make a difference. 
but one or two people who created that technology. I mean, that's something that could change the world and probably will in the next 25 years. Oh, I definitely agree. But, you know, you mentioned X-Risk, and I think CRISPR, that might be increasing X-Risk. Maybe it'll decrease it, but, you know, I mean, I'm sure you're aware with gene editing technology, it's going to be a lot easier for rogue groups to create, you know, killer viruses, to weaponize smallpox. So might someone object to what you're saying, saying, look, in the long run, you're completely right. But man, in the short run, maybe we should go slower with these technologies because most of them have dual use. And until we don't have people like ISIS running around who actually want to bring about an apocalypse, let's just not figure out how to edit genes. And if we do figure it out, let's not tell anyone that we figured it out. Yeah, no, and it is a good point because, as I said, you know, one of our three main features of, of my campaign and the, and the party is, is really worrying about existential risk. And I have told people again and again, in fact, many scientists have told me that their number one concern right now is that you can go on eBay and for under $1,000, you can buy a quite sophisticated biohacking kit and create different types of viruses. And, it, you know, it only takes one person getting lucky that they create that one virus that's going to end up taking out millions and millions of people. However, at the same time, you know, I, I'm hopeful that, there'll be, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do with my campaign is just popularize these ideas because I think a, a huge amount of people don't even realize some of these, these you know, discoveries have actually occurred and how, how far along science really is. So the discussion is critical. I mean, it, you have not really heard um, Hillary Clinton or um, – Donald Trump speak about uh, CRISPR gene editing technology. In fact, I just did an interview with Gary Johnson where, you know, his very first words came out on he was supportive of CRISPR and gene editing technology um, and, and supportive of not putting any regulatory hurdles to it. But you, he was really you, the. Do you agree with that, that there shouldn't be regulatory hurdles on CRISPR, even if parents using it, you know, on the on their embryos? And say, let's say, an obviously non-crazy way. So we'll exclude parents who want their babies to die in pain quickly. But yeah, yeah. So I would, I would not go so far to say that we it should be completely unregulated. Um, I would go, I would say that there needs to be some regulation. But whatever we decide to do should be decided quickly and shouldn't be one of those things that we wait forever. I'm not so worried about ISIS gaining hold of this type of technology. In the exact same way that I really haven't worried that much about ISIS gaining hold of nuclear weapons. Um, I think uh, we're sort of in, a, in such a there, – there's so much complexity in this science that it's, it's not so easy for anyone to just gain it and use it in a negative, in a negative way. So, so I'm not as worried about it, I think, as perhaps you are, but I'm more worried about it than Gary Johnson, that's for sure. So certainly there would have to be some regulation on my on, – if I was – you know, elected president, I would definitely in the bioethics committee say, well, how can we slow this down a little and make sure that this remains, you know, safely and used safely? Okay. I, I haven't heard that. I, I know that making atomic bombs is extremely difficult and we probably shouldn't be that worried about ISIS creating their own. But is it true that it would be difficult for, say, 12 engineers in ISIS to create killer viruses? I don't I don't really know about that. Is that is that something you've investigated or? So it's something I've investigated on a preliminary level. So far, the answer is it's pretty difficult to create killer viruses that quickly. What people can do is create different types of viruses that we already have and spread them, you know, and, and things like that. Um, and the thing, the good news is that with many of these things that we already have, like let's say Ebola or something like that, 
we, we generally have already have methods to contain them. The, the ability to just create something out of the air that's new is, is actually quite complex. Um, the real problem, though, is when they're talking about, you know, spreading bio, you know, doing some of this bioterrorism, um, if they can get into the country and put it into the water, you could get uh, hundreds of thousands of people very sick very quickly. So a lot of what we need to worry about right now is not so much people being able to take the pre-existing viruses that we have, but their ability to get across borders and and into uh, into a city system where all of a sudden you can actually spread this quite effectively. And um, you know that that's that's why we haven't had terrorist attacks at least focused so much. So you know right now on um, ISIS using this biohacking technology, partially because they have, not, not, have not, not had much success in actually getting into the country. And when they do, the easiest thing for them to do is not to, re, to do virus attacks, but usually just to gra grab a machine gun or a bomb and to, and to, and to you know, kill people. So that, that's been the strategy so far. I don't think they're as sophisticated as um, I think a lot of people worry, but that doesn't mean they won't be. And like I said, again, this is where we'd have to kind of say, well, how far do we take CRISPR technology? If it's so easy that any uh, high school student can do it, that has obviously become too easy. Mm -hmm. That not this an argument, though, for not cutting back on the U.S. military, for maybe expanding it, that we should be prepared for the possibility that we might not be able to tolerate any groups like ISIS, that if it gets easy enough to create you know, bio, you know, these horrible biological weapons, that we have to be strong enough to be able to go anywhere in the world quickly and just eliminate this kind of terrorist group. And even if there's only a 5% chance that in 20 years this will happen, our military should be strong enough to be prepared for this contingency. Yes. Well, so, you know, I think when I talk a lot about cutting the military, I say it in a very general way. What I would never cut is some of the most front, you know, forefront of the military when you're talking about cutting the biohacking terrorism and stuff like that. That stuff I would never do. But you have to understand, we have a million soldiers around the world right now, a million soldiers being essentially fed. We have another million that can come up on reserve. I, one of the things I would like to do if I was you know, president is to eliminate the, the actual use of live soldier, you know, human beings in the field. Much more drone activity, that's where the money needs to be spent. Much more resources spent on the development of artificial intelligence and the development of kind of technologies that essentially take people out of it. But when you actually look at the budget, it takes a huge amount of money to feed bases where people have to eat and all day long be a part of the military. And this is part of what we talk about a military industrial complex. You're actually providing a huge amount of jobs to these people and feeding them and the machinery that they have to use. So that's where a lot of the stuff that I want to cut back on would take place. It's with actual human beings doing a lot of work like that. I just I see a future with no Marines, no armed, uh, you know, no Navy people. I see only special forces and even special forces at some point in the future replaced by by robots, machines and drones. How far away are we from being able to have drones that are that capable? Well, we're very so with drones, we're we're very close. Really, I think you know one of our one of the main ways that I would be dealing with ISIS right now is just to flood the Middle East with drones. And I don't mean the big giant drones that look at you from uh, you know uh, a half mile in the air. I mean we have now. It's, it's so cheap to build these little drones. We had them on our bus. You could have drones for $50, $60, $70 that know how to recharge themselves, keep going and flying back. And so if you have a, a terrorist family or a terrorist uh, a town, why not have 5,000 drones in the air all over? 
bothering people, you know, watching them, watching their every move. It's cheap enough for us to do, and it's, there's absolutely no liability involved. So there's other methods of dealing with terrorism. Um, you know, and I've said the same thing with even, you know, if we have questions about refugees, where there's all sorts of different tracking devices, there's all sorts of different types of ways of keeping, uh, you know, watching people from these little tiny drones all over, as opposed to opening ourselves, I think, to certain dangers. Now, I'm, I'm pro letting in refugees, and I'm also pro immigration, but I realize that we can use technology to lessen any of the dangers. So that's one way that I would do this. You know, I, I just actually wrote an article where I, you know, gave some advice to Trump, and I said, you know, he wants to build this wall for it, it costs about $25 billion. And I said, well, you know, for a tenth of that, you could just have 10 to 20,000 drones and um, little tiny little bases all along the, the border, and they can just fly out and then recharge themselves and go back and fly. Everything would be automated, and you'd probably have much better coverage, and then you'd get around all the environmental um, agencies who aren't going to let you build the wall anyways because of endangered species. Well, but what is this the... Sorry, what do the drones do when the Mexican family is coming over the border? They're spotted by the drones. What do the drones do? I assume they're not – you certainly don't want the drones to, like, kill anyone in that family. Are they spraying oh, them with something to deter them? No, no. They would just watch them until some live people came, you know, and because um, there's not – you have to understand, it's not like it's uh, – it, there's not that many people coming over on a daily basis. We'd obviously have some manned uh, stations where people could go out and meet these people and say, I'm so sorry, or take them back to the buses and, and take them back if they weren't going to be allowed in. Um, you have to understand, though, that I – you know, I basically support uh, – I don't support open borders, but uh, generally speaking, if I see a family that wants to work in America, uh, that's a good thing. We have a – you know, so I, I'm from an immigrant family myself. That, that's not saying that I would let in anyone, but um, generally speaking, we would have, you know, certain amount of guard – patrol guards on the ground that would look out for this stuff. And we do a much better job of controlling illegal immigration that way. But what I'm trying to do is actually just make suggestions where, uh, from transhumanist suggestions. There's, there's ways that technology and science can accomplish all these goals, whether it's terrorism, whether it's uh, foreign policy, whether it's just um, you know, human health. Science and technology can often do it far cheaper and far better than human beings. And um, we need to implement more science and technology when it comes to running the country. And I think we can streamline virtually every aspect of government that we have by doing that. Well, our government doesn't seem to be all that good at using technology. I mean, the Obamacare website, you know, famously took a long time to get running, even though the president made it his top priority. And our military, although we have excellent military hardware, it costs an extraordinary amount of money. So why... Why do you think that you could or someone you were advising could somehow get the government to be better at technology? Yes. Well, you know, that's a good question. Of course, I, I'll be honest with your listeners that I, uh, you know, I say we could do better. But, you know, I think the nature of government is to not be is to be sort of um, not as efficient as a normal capitalistic market, you know, or something like that, where, you, you know, innovation drives the expediency of it all. But I would hope that I would, you know, as president, bring in advisors and bring in cabinets and uh, cabinet members and bring in a government that would be far more efficient. I would aim to replace a huge amount of jobs with machinery, with technology that could, you know, basically make the entire system much more efficient. You know, I, I've 
been advocating for using a lot more surveillance that's done through AI or basic AI, through drone technology, through robots and those type of things, as opposed to people who I think often um, fall or, or just cannot be as as expedient in how they want to, you know, how they're trying to do their job. We're going to have driverless cars here very shortly, and I'm 100% convinced that they're going to be far more efficient than normal people behind the wheel. There'll be a lot less accidents. Uh, I think traffic will be much better because people won't stop and look at an accident and stop, you know, everybody on the freeway when they do that. So world, the world is going to get better. The government is going to get better. The more we use robots, the more we use software, and the more we automize, you know, basically the entire platform of the United States uh, government. Um, I, I, I agree with what you've said, but a lot of people would raise the objection saying, well, there's going to be mass unemployment. Do you think well, yes. Employment? Yeah, yes. I, I just, there, we, you know, so we have a, our, one of the policies that is made, I think, part of, you know, going back to your original question, why our um, the presidential campaign and the party has been so well received in the media, or at least so discussed, is we're really the first major presidential campaign that has endorsed a universal basic income. And while I, I try to stay to some strong libertarian values, or at least left-leaning libertarian values, as a transhumanist, as a futurist, I cannot see any way that people are going to be able to maintain their jobs over the next 15 or 20 years. Um, even my wife, who is an OBGYN, you know, and trained for 19 years to do what she does, there probably will be ba robots within 20 years that can deliver babies better than any doctor, or not necessarily better, but as efficiently as most doctors, and they can work 24 hours around the clock, and they will never sue their employer because they broke a finger or something went wrong or a needle punctured them. The, the point is, I think no matter what job you have over the next 25 years, we're probably going to lose 75 to 85 percent of the jobs. And we need a universal basic income or something that is in the system to keep people um, – without, you know, not revolting to keep the a society moving forward. So we have endorsed this universal basic income where everybody would, you know, every month get a certain salary that'd be enough to feed them, clothe them, a uh, roof over their head. And on top of that, if they can make money or if they can work, you know, that then they can do that. But we just feel that there's no question at some point in the very near future, uh, you know, there's, for example, there's 4 million truck drivers out there. I was with them on my bus tour and, um, and now they're having automated trucks. Europe just had ten giant trucks drive across the nation, uh, the the continent. If you you know if you replace four million mostly men, mostly gun carrying men, you know men who believe in gun rights, um, and you replace your jobs and don't give them anything new, and just put them on welfare, they're going to be pissed. They're they're going to revolt. They're going to cause civil conflict. So a universal basic income is is would be there to, you know, reduce strife and hopefully transition society into something that is not going to resemble capitalism anymore, something that's going to be a very different future in probably just 15 to 20 to 25 years. Well, why would it not resemble capitalism? I mean, you even assuming that the investors could still invest their money the way they wanted to, that would you'd still have markets working. And people with their money, if they could still buy what they wanted to, you'd still have a lot of aspects of the capitalist system working. Yeah, yeah. You know what? And I agree with you. We will still have a lot of aspects of the capitalistic system. But I think, you know, it's hard to imagine capitalism when you don't when you take have taken out the workforce. Unless Something happens, and, and some you know, uh, economists have suggested that people would own the robots that do the work for them. So basically, it wouldn't be any different than we have now. I, you know, and 
uh, as a journalist, I would have a robot that wrote my articles for me or, or something like that. However, you know, I, I just feel like the problem is that when we look 25 years out, we're looking on kind of a linear path and we're saying, okay, even if we did have robots that went, you know, were bus drivers and they took over for us or just automated things, then what happens in the next five or 10 years, the way exponential, the technology exponentially grows? I just think at some point over the next five to 10 years, I'm surprised Bernie Sanders didn't broach the subject. We're going to have to, you know, grapple with the fact that the structure of our economies are going to dramatically change. And who is going to pay for a universal basic income? Who is going to pay such a giant welfare system when robots simply do take all the um, service jobs in America? And, you know, you're already seeing McDonald's experiment with, uh, you know, uh, uh, giving hamburgers without you know anyone making them. You're already seeing Lowe's have robots that you know do things. Hotels that have robots. This this world is coming, and I think it's going to be incredibly disruptive. But we've never had this kind of disruption um, to the system. We've never had a point. You know, everyone says, "Oh, well, technology has always created more jobs because you know new technology creates new jobs." But what they don't realize is at some point. Technology just is better to replace all jobs, and when that happens, there's no more creation of human jobs. So um, we, you know, we're into a different, a very different valley. Yeah, I think a good analogy would be with horses. That technology did make horses obsolete, um, and you know, people might become like horses. Although an economic argument is that, well, if you have self-driving trucks, that reduces prices. Walmart's only going to do that if it's cheaper than hiring humans, and that causes Walmart to lower its prices and to hire more people. And everyone who isn't a truck driver basically gets a pay raise because the stuff they buy at Walmart is cheaper. So it's sense of, you know, robots make part of the economy more efficient. They help all the other people in the rest of the economy and they probably do create more jobs. Eventually, I think you're definitely right. And then it won't be worth hiring a person even at a wage of zero. But by then, I think we'll all be living like English aristocrats where you can work if you want to, but you don't need to because we'll have computers doing so much that we'll all be so rich. At least that's, no, and, and I, I agree I so. agree with you there. And I, I think, you know, I, I think what ultimately will happen, there's this new concept out there, and I, I don't like using the word communism because I, especially as a libertarian kind of guy, I, I just don't. But this term luxury automated communism has sort of become one of the go-to terms of what a lot of people think could happen in as little as 25 or 35 years, where... You know, there are robots have essentially taken over all jobs. We have either a government payout or we have our own robots. But whatever it is, it's not us working up, working nine to five in the grind anymore unless we really want to. And I think what this is going to open up and one of the reasons we support free education in my platform uh, free college education is because we think people are going to go back to school and not go to school because they're trying to make themselves better. But they might do a, a third PhD in history. And, and, you know, people are going to have time to pick up the guitar and take art classes. And I think what I'm talking about when I talk about a luxury society is, as you pointed out, is, you know, living as aristocrats, that's the beauty of technology is that we actually can make it so that we eliminate most of the suffering, most of the death. We have robots do our work for us. You know, I mean, we live in almost a utopia, kind of a, an idealized lifestyle. And especially then you start throwing in this idea of, like I mentioned, a, a democratic world government where we don't have civil strife between countries. There's less, um, le you know, there's more, there's just a more homogenous kind of group. There's not so many different religions, so many different ethnicities. The world can become a very wonderful place with very little suffering. 
And, uh, you know, it's all part of our kind of platform. Even though I know I have zero chance of winning the presidency right now, what we're trying to do is create through our 20 points. We have 20 points in our, our, our political platform is this is what could happen in 15 or 20 years if we can just get politicians to take us down this road, the politicians that are going to win. And, um, yeah, we might emerge at a, a really wonderful society. We might all look back in 20 years from now and say, wow, life was pretty difficult then, and now look at it. I, I don't think I agree with you on your, your desire for a world government. I mean, there's a lot of horribly run countries there out there, and I really don't want to make America more like those other countries. And I don't want people in those other countries to have any say over how this country is run. And it would be great if we could convert the people in other countries to be westernized. But I think like the lesson, the lesson of the last Bush administration is that we don't know how to do that. We tried really hard with good intentions to make Iraq a nice Western country, and we utterly failed. They, they don't want it. And that's fine. That's their right. But then I don't want the people of Iraq with the values they have to have any say over how my country is run. Yeah, no, and, and I, I agree with you. I, um, I, well, I think to begin with, um, you know, Iraq is a very small country when we're talking about the actual merging of, of nations, you know. Um, it's it's a you know a tiny population point and also not very wealthy. I'm talking more uh, merger on uh, South America, uh, North America, Asia. You know, people that I think generally would get along, and uh, and eventually Russia will probably join too because there's a certain type of out. It is hard. I got to say the Islamic people definitely seem to be on a different page, and I know they're the world's fastest growing religion, so that's going to be tough. But Maybe, maybe, uh, you know, there'll be um, something that will happen. One of our policies, and this, again, goes quite against a lot of my uh, stronger libertarian leanings, but we have advocated for making college mandatory. And um, in the age of extended lifespans, you know, people living now, someone born... When you say mandatory, as an economist, I hear when I hear government make something mandatory, that means if you don't do it, you go to prison. Do you mean that? I don't mean go to prison, but I mean it in the same way as a student, as someone who doesn't go to high school now. There are there are repercussions to that. So you, l l real quickly, let me just explain. People living today, 100% going to live to probably 120 or 150. Okay, it's not 100%, but there's a very good chance when you look at the lifespan uh, increases that we've had, it's very realistic that somebody born uh, tonight will. Um, have a very solid shot of living to 150. I would agree. Now, only conditional on civilization surviving, and I think the odds yeah, of civilization yes, surviving yes. might be low. Yes, they're, they're, and I agree with you. It's, it's interesting. I've read some recent articles on that, but let's just say that they do. Okay. The idea is when they created, when they made high school mandatory, high school in America wasn't always mandatory. Um, they made a lot of those rules in the 1960s. And when lifespans were in about 63 years old on average, and now they're like 85 and, and moving up easily to the hundreds soon, you know, in the next 20, 30 years. The point is, as a society that keeps living much longer, I think one way to counter violence, to counter um, suffering, to counter all these things, generally speaking, education makes people happier, more prosperous, uh, families stay together more. The kind of core things that make America, you know, make families work is generally tied to whether people have either been to college or not. Well, and gonna, I think it's... Let me just respond with something fairly politically incorrect. That might be correlation, not causation. The kind of people who would do well and enjoy college are people who have high IQ and also are very future-oriented. And those are also often the kind of people that you know achieve certain kinds of success. 
So making someone go to college, that would be like saying, well, we notice rich people drive expensive cars, so let's force poor people to spend most of their income buying a nice automobile, so therefore they'll be rich and they'll have the values of rich people. No, and, and that's a good argument, but I don't I do believe more in the human spirit than that. I think honestly, when someone has gone to high school, when someone has not, um, IQ aside, it's it's really about learning the basics of what makes good civil society. Somebody that can talk Nietzsche or talk Wittgenstein and someone that's been through the biology college courses, they just have a better grasp of reality. And generally speaking, and here's here's the big thing for me. You know, as you may know, I'm basically the very first uh, atheist presidential candidate in in American history. As oh no, I bet a is. lot of presidential candidates have been atheists. They've just hidden it. A hundred percent, and I agree with you too. I'm the first declared one that apparently has some yes, visibility. The first open but atheist, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The the point though is that, in my opinion, the last people stick to their fundamentalism, and generally college will rip that out of you because. Four extra years of education, of partying, of drugs, of sex. It's not just education or academics. I mean, it's, it's, it's a culture. You go through that process, and it opens you up to being a little bit more open-minded. That little bit of open-mindedness in, you know, tied in with just having the ability to be academically smarter, well, I think that would change the world. And that's why we advocate for a, you know, everybody going to college in the same way we advocate now for everyone going to high school. We think we can create a much more science and educated-minded society based on the emphasis that education is a wonderful thing. Now, of course, I know I won't work for everyone, and uh, in some cases there will probably have to be exceptions, but generally speaking, I would like to make it so that it, you don't get out. At, after high school, you can't just do what you want. you got to go and continue on. And we've also you know, advocated for a free education system, um, at least for those who uh, don't want to go to private uh, schools and such. Well. Now, I mean, I'm a college professor, and I my students tend to be motivated, and I like that. If you forced everyone to go to college, and I had some of them as my students, that would make my job harder, and I think I would do a worse job educating the students who are intrinsically motivated. So oh, I, I have no question that you're correct. But the question is, from a, a societal point of view, would there be greater good in society because that those supposedly non-motivated people actually were sort of forced or, or, you know, at least, you know, to go undergo these four years of extra learning that kept them from joining gang, uh, gangs, that kept them from, um, you know, taking menial jobs at Walmart and all these other things. That just changes the culture. It sort of just emphasizes that, wow, you know, there's more to this. And you have to understand, by the time someone is 22 versus 18, they already start to have a more mature outlook on life, a um, bit more realistic. You know, when you're 18, of course, anything, anything still goes. So, you know, a lot of what I'm trying to do is in the age of extended lifespans, dramatically extended lifespans, we should create a education that's much longer to match that extended lifespan. You know, there's a bit of a contradiction. You, you're saying that we're not going to get job most of us won't be having jobs in the future and that's considered the point of education or a large part of it is to train yourself to develop your human capital so in a world in which you're not going to need to support yourself there's less of a, a practical need to get educated and shouldn't that say well you know if i would much rather play video games than go to school why not let me that would make me all much happier i mean there are people who find education miserable why not let them you know, play video games or rake leaves or play Pokemon Go or do something. 
or sing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, I totally understand that. But you know, as as somebody who's trying to put forth a political agenda, I feel quite strongly in the same way I would feel strongly about my own children. You know, I want them to go to college, and I feel the same thing about my neighbors. I feel the same thing about my friends. I feel the same thing about the general populace. I want the best for them. I think this is the path to get the best. It might seem almost authoritarian, but at some point, you know, I think a presidential, you know, candidate or the president has to be almost a father, and he has to say this is in the best interest of the American public, so that everybody has a much better grasp on reality, or at least a, a deeper academic and a deeper kind of cultural grasp on history and all these other things that have sort of made us. More now, I know you know as a college professor, I know you agree, and of course you're playing a little bit of the devil's advocate. But generally speaking, an educated society would be preferable over an, a society that doesn't want to get educated. And I think it's not just about um, you know uh, freedom; it's really about the best interest of humanity as a whole. Okay, so you think there's a large public good aspect to it. Yes, yes, and I think that's really what's motivating me because I agree with you. We should have, you know, the very first initial response I have as somebody who's sort of a left libertarian is, hey, if they want to play Pokemon with their life or, you know, let themselves do whatever they want to do endlessly, let them do that. But then another side of me says, no, actually, as human beings, it's a miracle that we're alive. We should take this life and try to cultivate that. And we should cultivate it because we're entering into this incredible age where eventually we'll even reach the singularity and, you know, humanity is transcending itself and becoming transhuman. So we need competent individuals in a competent society to deal with those changes, especially in a democratic, uh, you know, society. So I think uh, if we're going to live in a democracy where everyone has a vote, we ought to expect our citizens to be uh, as competent as, you know, not as competent as possible, but a certain measure of competence. And uh, like I said, I think a good college education is something that can go a long way there. Okay. Let me ask you about an issue I've come to care a lot about. And I, I think that transhumanists should advocate exterminating mosquitoes that bite people. There's, I'm sure you know mosquitoes do an enormous amount of damage to humans. They kill, I think, like over a thousand people a day, mostly through malaria. We know with the Zika virus, mosquitoes are starting to cause a lot of harm even to first world people. Um, we could probably use gene drives to exterminate the mosquitoes that bite people. And most mosquito species don't bite people. So it would just be eliminating a small number of species. And we kind of eliminate like lots of species every day anyway without even trying. So this really wouldn't have much of a big ecological impact. What, what do you think of that? Would you be in favor of exterminating mosquitoes that bite people? Oh, what a great question. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with the with what has happened so far. We need to take another year or two to decide this. We cannot motive, we cannot move forward on the gene drives yet. I want to exterminate the, the mosquito, but I don't think it's in our best interest as human beings to move too quickly on this one. And this is where I become almost not an anti-transhumanist, but somebody who understands that. Yes, we have now the possibility to do the gene drives of mosquitoes and eliminate mosquitoes entirely. What will be the fallout from that? We need to have more experiments and take time with this. I know 750,000 people are dying from malaria every year, but um, if we eliminate mosquitoes and then we need them to cure of some other plague that we you know, have or we create a new plague by them 
not being there, and that plague kills billions. So we could always keep some mosquito eggs. I mean, we could keep some frozen, I'm sure, and bring them back if we really need to. Of course, of course. I just think this is, you're talking about, so we've just, the problem is that we've historically done this, where we've gone and introduced rabbits on, you know, on islands and stuff, and it's turned out awfully in many cases. So also I'm advocating. It's never been as bad as a million people dying miserably of malaria. So we've never done, you know, there's nothing that's ever happened from introducing a species where it wouldn't be counterbalanced by the benefit of just for one year of eliminating the mosquitoes that bite people. I, I totally agree with you. And that's why, you know, my case in this, in this instance would be just to hold off for a period of time until we've had a double look at it. It's the very first time we've ever used this we are not sure 100% how it's going to work. It seems like it's perfect, but it's sort of like, you know, it's terrible that that many people are going to die because of this decision, but I still would hold off because I'm afraid of moving too quickly on this specific subject. I've actually looked into this deeply, and I, I tend to agree with what has happened so far. Um, those that want to hold off indefinitely, I completely disagree with. But I thought an extra year of holding off was it was a was a, was a smart decision. Okay, so uh, you you mentioned you've recently become involved in something called a push-up challenge. What what's that? Oh yes, the push-up challenge. <laughs> the mosquito thing is fascinating. If your listeners haven't looked into it, it's really one of the very first major decisions that we've had to use with gene editing, and um, we have the ability to literally wipe out malaria and wipe out mosquitoes, but we're going to be wiping out something forever. And uh, mosquitoes do more in the environment than just spread disease. There's a whole bunch of range of things that mosquitoes have done, which is why they've done so well. So, you know, it's a very thorny topic. And um, even my very pro-transhumanist side was willing to say, you know, give that another year of looking into it and let's double up the scientists who are examining it to make sure that we don't do something crazy. Um, so the, the, the push-up challenge Essentially, a report came out recently, uh, a few months ago, I think it was the Department of Veterans um, something, but either way, it was an official report that said approximately 22 um, veterans or soldiers are killing themselves every uh, day in America or around the world, but either way, they're American veterans. And um, when you actually add up 22,000 a day, that number was insanely high, and literally everyone that read that freaked out and said, well, this is, this is awful. How can we let some of the best of us, those that go out and try to defend our freedom, um, just kill themselves from depression? Uh, you know, can, can America and can its government do more to keep these people alive and make them happy? And so uh, the 22 push-up challenge was started as a way to raise awareness. Unlike the ALS uh, ice bucket challenge, which was awesome, which was awesome and did well, um, there's no requirement to give any money or even asking for money. This is just, we just want to spread the word because it, we, you know, most people feel it's so, it's so awful, so tragic that so many of our veterans are killing themselves, committing suicide. So someone has started this idea where you, for 22 days, you do 22 push-ups because that's the amount of people that kill themselves every day, soldiers. And um, every single day you nominate somebody else uh, one of your friends or somebody else to spread it as well. And so this has sort of started to go viral. And in the last two weeks, it's just taken off. I've seen every single major media play, uh, you know, source covering it. Now, I want to point out real quickly that there's some controversy on whether the figure is actually 22 um, veterans dying, uh, committing suicide a day. Some people say it's far less. 
But whatever it is, it's an issue worth discussing because it's an issue worth making a stand against because even one veteran a day killing themselves is way too much. So I have now joined the second day of doing my 22 push-ups for 22 days and nominating somebody. And it's an interesting thing to do. I got to say, it is powerful and it's getting a lot of people aware. And I guess it's also making me a bit stronger. Yeah. And certainly, I mean, if you're running for president, you need to be focusing on American troops and our veterans, too. That's such an important responsibility of the president to take care of. And I think what's also important is it's raising awareness from a very transhumanist perspective of something else. Depression, you know, hits tens of millions of Americans and, you know, I'm not sure, maybe hundreds of millions of people around the world. So depression, you know, and most people are killing themselves, of course, because they're depressed. So this is something very important to talk about. I don't think people realize how far up the ladder suicide is when it comes, you know, when it comes down to how Americans are dying. Suicide is very high, especially in young people. So there's something to be done. And of course, as somebody as a transhumanist whose number one perspective is to live indefinitely, you know, keeping people from killing themselves is another way of trying to preserve life. And I very strongly support it. And I'm I very strongly, you know, think that people with depression should get types of help that can that can make them just feel like, hey, life is okay to go through. I assume you'd be in favor of legalizing drugs that might help people on depression. There's certain drugs like ecstasy, which might be useful, but of course it's illegal, so doctors can't prescribe them. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, we did a big story on our bus tour in in Alabama, which has some of the, I'm sorry, it was in Arkansas, some of the most strict drug laws in the country. Marijuana is not illegal, not just not illegal, even medicinal marijuana was not illegal. So we heard stories of children having seizures, not being able to have access to any type of like the, the marijuana pills. And as a result, families moving across the, the uh, and some and there's been some studies that have said some people, including children, only react to like a, a marijuana pill when it controls seizures. Uh, of course, I advocate for implants and even recently President Obama has signed a 70 million dollar deal with DARPA to produce implants um, in soldiers. Uh, to uh, try to deal with PTSD and, and depression and stuff like that. But the bottom line is we live in a country that laws don't really allow people to have access to even some of the most rec- basic drugs that might help them. And, um, you know, it, it, I, I advocate for legalization of all drugs, 100%. I take the Portugal route, which is, um, you know, Portugal has basically legalized everything, and we should spend all the money saved from the war on drugs, about a trillion dollars now, on rehabilitation. Because I don't think people naturally would be uh, that inclined to take drugs if they had better rehabilitation kind of um, advocacy out there. So, uh, you know, if that that means I would support heroin, I would support uh, cocaine, I would support uh, legalization of everything. I think the best way to do it is to tax the hell out of it, give incentives so people don't do the stuff. Um, or if they want to do it, they just have to pay out of pocket. And all that money goes to, you know, a lot more treatment and a lot more um, ways to keep the bad stuff out of people's hands. That's, I think, the, the best way. Portugal has had actually amazing success. Yeah, I've in, heard that in, too. In, in this, it, it, the, the studies from Portugal, from the Cato Institute, are insane. They they completely, when you look at it and you read it from an objective perspective, you say, "Wow, they've now done it for ten years." I think they started in two thousand one. They legalized everything. It's they've reduced the amount of people on drugs, and they've saved a ton of money. 
And people can also enjoy the basic drugs like marijuana without any worries and getting arrested and their prisons have emptied. You know, so it's been a win-win for virtually every kind of person that's looked into it. Of course, it's difficult to say whether that would work in America, which is so much of a larger nation, but I definitely think it would. And I would advocate for such, and I have through my entire campaign. Yeah, I mostly agree with you on that. Um, there was a Vox interview of you in which it said that you were planning eventually on dropping out and supporting Hillary Clinton. Is that still your intention or is that article wrong? Or? No, you know, that was it, it's hard. It's first off, so much has changed because uh, that when I started the bus tour that I thought that was good. And it's not so I was going to drop out. It was more I'm not going to drop. Out. I'm going to definitely do my campaign to the end. The real question is, I probably will within 72 hours of the final ask my supporters to put support to somebody specific. Um, and since that Vox interview, I actually, partially because of my campaign became so big, I actually interviewed uh, with Gary Johnson to be his vice president. I flew over to, to really? New Mexico to, yeah, yeah, so I, it was amazing. I actually had a two That's days with, with Gary Johnson. Yeah, I just wrote about this for in Futurism. We have a nice photo of it, but I uh, flew to New Mexico. He had me as a house guest. He made me uh, pasta dinner, and it was just him and I in the house alone, and we talked uh, for about 10 hours straight. We watched Orphan Black together and all sorts of fun things, and then the next day we continued. He eventually picked uh, Governor Bill Weld as his running mate because uh, Governor Bill Weld was probably a better choice than my inexperienced self. But um, I uh, you know, became good friends with him, and I have been supporting him since. I still support Hillary Clinton, but... In my opinion, because Gary Johnson has done so well in the polls, what is really important to me, um, even over right now Hillary Clinton winning the, uh, the presidency, is that one third party reaches above 5% in the, in, the in the popular vote, and therefore they're going to get a huge amount of government funding for the 2020 elections. Um, basically, if, if you reach above 5% of the popular vote, you go from being a third party to a major party in terms of what the government will give you in funding. So Gary right now is polling well above that. It's never happened, uh, at least not, not it happened like 20 years or something like that, where a third party is actually qualified for this type of federal funding. What it means is in 2020, um, the Libertarian Party will have a much better chance of running a candidate because they'll have so much more funding for the party. And of course, I'll probably run as a libertarian presidential candidate uh, in 2020. Uh, I'm happy I, in 2016 I ran for the Transhumanist Party. It's been an excellent endeavor. But we, it, is, it costs a fortune to get ballot access. It takes so much, uh, so much in volunteer time and so much in organization to actually get on state ballots that it, it just made it literally impossible. You would have to spend virtually all your time and even if you spent all your time, you'd probably only get on 10 ballots the very first year. So, um, you know, it's, just so you know, the Libertarian Party has been 40 years at this, and this is the very first year they might be on all 50 state ballots. It takes parties decades to develop in order to become a true party that can compete on the national level. So with this in mind, for me, it's very important that any third party um, rises up, and that's why I think I probably will end up supporting um, Gary Johnson. But I want to point out real quickly that supporting Gary Johnson doesn't mean actually voting for him. Sometimes supporting Gary Johnson might also mean voting for Trump 
or voting for Clinton or voting, you know, for something else. Because in order the way the electoral votes work, you might actually have a better chance of helping him, uh, helping Trump out in order to defeat Hillary in a certain state so that Gary would win another state and get electoral votes there. So it's a it's a very weird political game. But right now I'm leaning towards supporting Gary Johnson. And uh, even though I still my wife will probably vote for Hillary. Okay, well, that's interesting. Let me ask you a final question about something in your Wikipedia entry. Now, I know you're you're very strongly in favor of life extension, but there's something in your Wikipedia entry that really contradicts that, and that's that you're interested also in volcano boarding. Is that what is volcano boarding? It sounds like really bad for your future life expectancy. <laughs> sure, sure. So, you know, when I began my career uh, as a journalist, I, I had the luck of right out of college, uh, starting at the National Geographic Channel, and I was just you know in my 20s. And um, I went to Vanuatu and did a bunch of um, stories on indigenous uh, tribes. But there is this volcano in Vanuatu that when you look at it from a distance, you say to yourself, that is the best double diamond ski slope I've ever seen. Except instead of uh, snow, it's pumice. And pumice is the ash that falls from the, side of the, the, from the inside of the volcano because of trade winds. So I went and got a snowboard, had a ship, you know, over, and and I asked National Geographic, can I do the story for you? And they said, yes, invent the sport of volcano boarding. <laughs> so I went up to the very top of it, and it was just like I saw, and I went down, and pumice or ash from volcano, when it's a little bit hardened, is just like ski snow powder. So, um, you know, the video, your viewers can just type in Zoltan Ishvan, uh, National Geographic volcano boarding, and they're going to come to this episode because it aired on TV and it's all over now. Um, it was really the episode that sort of launched my career as a journalist. And uh, I was, you know, credited essentially with inventing volcano boarding back in 2001. To be honest with you, I did it in 1995 when I was there before, but I had always had the idea. It was um, when I was in the middle of college. So when I went back for National Geographic, I then had my snowboard and all my camera equipment, and we made a big, uh, a big film on it. And that's that's how volcano boarding was launched. The interesting thing is now volcano boarding is actually quite popular in a number of different countries because many volcanoes around the, the world have this these pumice slopes. And so volcano boarding is sort of like this idea that not only are you going down ash slope, but the volcano is exploding behind you. And like Russian roulette, you're trying to avoid these lava bombs that are falling around you. And, um, you know, you, you obviously don't choose a volcano that's too dangerous, but the one I did had the occasional bomb falling and if if a rock hits you a molten you know rock hits you from you know a half mile in the air you die there in the, along this volcano that i did in vanuatu there were three grave sites of tourists so people die uh, not all the time but you know about about every few years someone dies so that's how the sport became what we call an extreme sport is because of the the lava bombs and um that's 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 to your your, your listeners uh volcano boarding and they can they can see the national geographic just uh the YouTube, it's up there on YouTube. It's fun to watch. Okay, well, thanks. That's an interesting story. And I, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to come on The Future Strategist. And I, I wish you luck in your presidential campaign. Hey, thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you. You asked a bunch of uh, very uh, good and uh, uh, I'd say awesome questions. Okay, well, thanks. If you enjoy The Future Strategist podcast, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please consider joining my Facebook group, which is just called Future Strategist. Thank you. Goodbye.